Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Our first guest is Melanie Cheng, and her debut book titled Australia Day, a collection of short stories which last year won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Best Unpublished Manuscript. Not a bad effort, eh, David? Indeed, indeed. And this year it has been published by none other than Text Publishing. Melanie Cheng, welcome to 3CR's Published or Not. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Now, congratulations on Australia Day. I really enjoyed all your 14 short stories in this collection. Do you have a sense of achieving the near impossible by having a collection of short stories published as your debut? Oh, yes. The whole experience has been quite a whirlwind, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, it was a great validation getting winning the prize of um, such a prestigious prize as well. Um, and um, there is a bit of a precedent there. Maxine Beniba-Clark's um, okay. Foreign Soil was a short story collection that won that prize and went on to do very well, um, a collection I love as well. So um, I'm not the only one. But <laughs> Do you remember, though, on the short list, though, if you are up against novels or novellas or other collections of short stories? Yes. Um, the three short listings were there was a young adult novel and yeah. there was a literary novel yeah. and mine. Okay. Um, I do know that the judges, one was Maxine Beneva Clark and one was Jennifer Down and they're both um, short story writers. Um, so I, I guess I know I knew that they appreciated the form. Which leads me into a general question about short stories. Now, Publishers do tend to say readers want longer, more satisfying journeys, and that's why they do have a preference for novels and novellas. But what would you say to that as a short story writer? Well, I will admit that I only started reading short stories when I started writing them myself. Um, <laughs> but um, in, in doing that, I really fell in love with the form. I think um, they do... You know, readers coming from novels to short stories might find it a little bit disorienting at first because um, they do naturally leave the questions unanswered. Um, they may not tie things up as neatly as the longer form, but that's quite a kind of the beauty of it. I think I liked being left kind of haunted by some stories by, say, Kate Kennedy or Alice Munro. You know, I love that feeling. In a way, they make the reader work a bit more. But um, I think they, as I was saying to you before, they have certain strengths as well. So in my collection, Australia Day, I wanted to, you know, showcase the breadth of the Australian experience and the diversity of our culture. And so to not be limited by one story and not be limited by one protagonist um, was great in being able to, you know, achieve that, I think. You've given us such a great snapshot of... Uh, Melbourne. I mean, I know it's Australia Day, but you've got trams in there and you've got our obsession <laughs> with coffee and food and place names and locations. Now, I'm actually going to compare this to James Joyce's Dubliners, which was written uh, roughly 100 years ago. It was published in 19, uh, 1914 at a time when uh, Ireland was struggling with its identity before the revolution that led, re led to the Republic. Not that I'm suggesting there's going to be one here now, but we are struggling <laughs> with our identity now in Australia. And I see that as a parallel. And 
and also something you just alluded to before, the stories are not neatly tied up necessarily. Now, some people might find that uh, the ambiguity uh, not to their liking, but Joyce was so well known and appreciated by the likes of Hemingway for giving uh, you the sense of an ending which might be an epiphany or an insight or leaving you rather disturbed. Have you consciously taken on board some of those techniques in your short stories? I mean, that's high praise indeed, being compared to James Joyce, of course. Um, I think I learned through reading short stories that had done that and that, you know, that was something that appealed to me, definitely. Um, and I guess something about our society at the moment, um, which bothers me a little bit, is the kind of simplistic reductionist narratives that we hear all the time. Um, and certainly in my work as a GP, I see so much greyness, so much ambiguity, and I wanted to convey that in the stories. I wanted to show both sides, show that there are no maybe easy answers, um, and that's okay as well. And there's beauty in that, I think, mm. as well. But I, I don't want to give our listeners the sense that you don't end stories or whatever, <laughs> but you do them in an unconventional way. And uh, one that comes to mind is now it's where the couple go on their honeymoon in the Maldives. That is called the the blue. What is it? Clear blue seas. Clear blue seas. And we're just on this holiday, but then there's this talk about how the Maldives might be threatened by global warming. And the uh, new bride, the new wife, she's getting used to that name, uh, goes from the resort itself on the island she is and goes into an area where the locals live. And she's told, well, she's not welcome here. She's sort of gone across into uh, that. It's not an invisible line. It's a different compound. But there's a sense of menace lurking culturally. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, the idea of the sea warm, breathing and waiting to get the island. Now, that at the end, it sent me uh, back over the entire short story, which for me is a mark of a good story. You get to that last sentence and you read something and go, whoa, <laughs> look back over that story. But that sense of resonance, how hard was it to come up with that sort of symbolism and confluence of all these factors to leave that resonance with readers? Yeah, that's one of the stories that uh, I worked on for a long time. I think I rewrote that, yeah, oh, gosh, countless times. Um, and so, yeah, it, there was a lot of work involved in that. Um, I wanted to, you know, this the protagonist there, she, you know, her partner is very wealthy and successful, um, but he's done it tough, you know, and he kind of feels entitled to that success, whereas she, coming from quite a privileged background, um, feels uneasy with the luxury that she's enjoying. And I guess she feels guilty. Um, but at the same time, she's trying to reach out to the locals, but they don't want her either because they see her as quite different. And But the menace, I'm glad you picked up on that because I was trying to, you know, we are living in those times, you know, we just heard today of that huge, you know, iceberg coming off the Antarctic, you know, this is the time, we, you know, and that threat is yeah, is I, with us now. Kept, so I wanted well. to leave people with that uneasiness yeah. because that's the times that we're living in. Yeah. Uh, just on that point uh, of menace, I've heard it said that a good short story will have a sense of menace. Um, do you agree with that? Um 
trying to think of my other short stories. I don't know. The one that, for me, I, I could see why it was the second last one. For me, it formed the natural climax of the collection. Mm-hmm. It's called Muse. Mm-hmm. One word, beautifully chosen. And here is where I, I really think writers are tested when they have to not write their own gender and do it convincingly. And you have done this from the point of view of a 70-year-old <laughs> man. And it is so convincing and it it's so haunting and spellbinding. Uh, it is the longest story. I think yeah, it's about 40 yeah. pages or so in it. Um, now, I, I don't know, is there a sense of menace you had on that or is it there is a real sense of journey in there? Yeah, I mean, I've had feedback from a lot, a lot of men about that story who, and they've really enjoyed it. So to me, that's, you know, great praise that, that, that it felt authentic. Um, um, and I guess, you know, I'm privileged because I work as a GP part-time and um, a lot of the patients I used to see when I was working in the western suburbs were elderly widowers. Um, so I had some insight into um, what it might be like. Um, my own grandfather, one of my grandfathers was also a widower most of his life. Um, so I'm quite, you know, intrigued in terms of what that might be like. And so I'm, I'm lucky and privileged to hear their stories. Um, not that I would write about specific patients, but obviously just having that insight helps to, to to be able to write that experience. Sure, to, yeah. uh, th- 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 those insights. The um, uh, Actually, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, as you're saying it, about when Joyce wrote the Molly Bloom monologue at the end of Ulysses, and it is so brilliant. At times you have to re- remind yourself, hang on, this is actually not a woman's thoughts being it. This is a guy writing this. You do it really convincingly. But then, say, so the very last story with the, the Chinese grandmother that is another extraordinary shift there where she's coming together with a cultural shift from Hong Kong to Melbourne and dealing with what happens with her family. Um, is that more drawn from your professional or family experience? Um, that one kind of arose out of a bit of a thought experiment. So there was a time in my life where my Chinese grandmother, grandparents were thinking about coming down to live in Australia as part of the family reunification. And my grandmother didn't speak any English. Um, that eventually didn't happen. But I, you know, was trying to imagine what that experience would be like. Um, and I like, like those are two of my favorite stories probably too um and i really wanted to create you know have elderly people as the main protagonists because i think we are living in an aging population and i don't think that they're necessarily reflected in our literature um and so and with muse in particular i mean a lot of people have talked about his innocence and naivety and i wanted to convey that too because in my experiences with many elderly patients they don't necessarily feel wise or you know they've got a lot of life experience but they still have a lot of insecurities um and so i wanted to convey that as well and the reason i put muse and a good and pleasant thing together was because i also wanted to compare and contrast the experience of kind of a white australian caucasian you know elderly man with a 
elderly Chinese migrant woman, um, and I think there are similarities there. There um, are, and it works so well. I mean, I'm back to this last story without trying to in any way spoil it, but we've got this grandmother who's struggling with uh, the cultural change, and her three daughters have all gone off and done their own thing. But there's this, I find it very amusing, anchoring point. It's the grandson's appetite for her food. <laughs> that gives her purpose and direction, and uh, it helps us sort of deal with the way that the family's going overall. Look, I think it's a wonderful collection, and congratulations on how well you've achieved this. And I really do think uh, you know, it's, it's almost achieving the impossible, getting a collection of short stories published. And readers have got to uh, read these for themselves to appreciate how well they are done. But there is one more question, just to round out, and I like to ask this of all authors that I interview. In your view, what makes for great writing? Oh, wow. I'll put you on the spot. I mean, I think great writing changes you in some way and irreversibly changes you, the way you view the world. Um, I mean, I've had experiences like that um, with, you know, certain authors and, you know, if people can get that from my book, that would be you know, the greatest achievement for me. Yeah. It's a great answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> Melanie Cheng and her collection of short stories, Australia Day. It's published by Tex Publishing and it's in the bookstores now. Melanie, thank you very much. David, back and to you. Thank you. In uh, hearing that Melanie's a GP uh, and writing, I was thinking of Chekhov, who made his career <laughs> oh, writing short yeah. stories. And uh, who better to uh, look at um, stories about old men but you and I, you and I, two aging men. But um, I'm going back now, regressing to my university days. I can, oh, good. I can remember those vaguely. And uh, you're familiar, Ewan, with uh, student behaviour today, perhaps? Well, yes, because I teach at two universities. Yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, one might have second thoughts about student life were one to read Ian Ryan's <laughs> The Student. So, Ian, welcome to 3CR. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Now, our protagonist is one, Nathan Byrne, and uh, he seems to be in a permanent state of being munted. Could you care to explain (laughs) the word munted? Oh, gosh. I didn't know we were going to open up with this. Uh, (laughs) Munted is uh, sort of Queensland slang for, for drunk or intoxicated on something else. Well, in fact, one of our first encounters with um, uh, Nate is uh, where he's got to do the four Bs, bourbon, bulb and bud. Um, I sit down cross-legged at the coffee table. Any specific order? There's no order to anything, says some guy who's been quiet up till now. So I do the first, the shot first. It burns all the way down. I hate shots. Bulbs aren't my thing either, but I'm not new to it. While the bourbon is still hurting me, I put my mouth over the canister nozzle and push on the trigger, inhaling nice and slow. Tunnel vision. The world tilts forward. Echoes. I used to be the happiest person I knew. I remember Iris being that way too. We must have spent half our lives as kids just walking around at dusk. We run down one street after another back then, all those cheap houses on the edge of Eagleby Scrub. It was warm. My vision opens back out. So he seems to be in this permanent state of being drug-addled, which is one of the first problems we have. But what's, um, what's Nathan's background here? 
Uh, he's uh, studying business in Garten, uh, which is where I studied my business degree. Uh, and that's a, very much a second-tier university in Queensland. It's part of the University of Queensland, but uh, they generally teach agricultural science and all of the agricultural uh, regional-type subjects out there. And then they send all the business students that don't have the grades for the St. Lucia campus out there. Uh, so it's a really unusual place. I suppose if you're from Queensland, you'd immediately sort of see that Nate is someone who's probably not a high achiever at school, uh, though in the book he's very ambitious and very interested in the idea of what business can sort of open up for Well, him. he's supplementing his income, isn't he? He is. I mean, he has cause to, but... Uh, Yes, he's entrepreneurial. In what way? <laughs> he's a pot dealer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he also works as a shift manager at... I oh, know, as a... Yeah, he's the shift manager, if I remember correctly. At, at McDonald's. McDonald's. Yeah. Yes. So um, it all seems reasonably innocent, dealing in weed and such like. But then uh, he comes across a bit of a problem, um, and uh, there are two bikies that make a call on him. Their names are Dennis and Hatch, and my caravan looks crowded with them in it. Dennis is the bear. Hatch is the one with the rifle. He stands it against the kitchen counter as I check the van's little fridge. I have three bottles of a neighbour's homebrew and a half-empty goon bag of red wine. Dennis peers in over my shoulder. He grunts when I pull out the beer. The two of them push themselves into the van's breakfast nook. Sit down, kid. I stay by the fridge. Dennis says, you seen Jesse? No. You know where Jesse is? I don't know. That's a pity. I wait. They look at each other, take a mouthful of beer each. I just sell for him, I say. We know who you are, says Hatch. You're Jesse's partner. One of them anyhow, adds Dennis. That's not... There's no... We're not partners. He's more like a supplier. Well, then I guess that makes you my bitch then, because I'm Jesse's supplier, says Dennis. He waves his hand. I said, come here. Sit. What's... <laughs> The, what's Nathan's problem here? What's his difficulty? Yeah, he's uh, the his supplier, so the person that's wholesaling the the drugs for him has disappeared. And he, as the novel sort of opens up a bit, we start to see that Jesse has uh, he really needs he has a lot of financial pressure placed upon him, uh, and so he is very very interested in finding his supplier and getting the supply chain open up again, and so he can kind of continue to make money. So, and, and in fact, he's doing reasonably well with his trade because he's um, offsetting his parents' mortgage and mm -hmm. all of these sorts of things. But this difficulty arises and he's given the challenge of finding Jesse because uh, Jesse owes money to these bikies and um, basically Nate is being held responsible for this debt. Um, and then there's another little uh, thread that you implant fairly, uh, early on uh, a white piece of paper flaps at my feet, caught under the door. I reach down and pick it up. Missing. Maya Kibbe. So there's this little echo that keeps reappearing of this person that's gone missing. And uh, Nate's uh, using this little bit of paper to write his little lists on of things he has to do. But Maya Kibbe keeps echoing. And so there's something... Um, sort of suspicious about it or worrying, which we don't find out until later. Uh, so there are all these threads. And this starts a cascade of ever-escalating problems. Um, 
Nate's now in a fair deal of trouble. He needs to find Jesse. And the pace of this book then fairly rockets along. Um, the sections of the book are named after days of the week. And we start on Wednesday. We've got to find a solution by Monday. There's the first uh, challenge at the pace. And then we have a series of escalations. He has to find Jesse. Then he has to find the money. Then he has to find Sock. Did Was this deliberate in terms of escalating the, the tension? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't know exactly how it's being received, but uh, it was written entirely as a crime novel. Mm. So it pays and plot uh, sort of the, the things that you really need to concentrate on, I think, to achieve that. Uh, especially the crime novels that I like are all very fast in, in that kind of department. And because it was trading off uh, elements of my own biography, not that I was a pot dealer, but I did live <laughs> in Gatton in the year 1994 and was studying a business degree, uh, I was really scared that it was going to end up as a memoir. Uh, and I just didn't want it to be like that. I didn't want it to be reflective in that way. I wanted it to be really kind of entertaining at a surface. How level. close is this then to the lifestyle university students were? Um, because just to give you an indication, uh, Sock, for example, uh, Sock doesn't have the best origin story. When we met him, he was living in a share house with some of Jesse's first off-campus customers. They had a place out in Forest Hills. It was a real disaster. Lord of the Flies level stuff. They all lived on homebrew, tip-top white bread and, and Nintendo. And their attendance on campus was so bad that it was months, literally months, before anyone realised Sock wasn't enrolled. He was a local. He had apparently picked up a roommate wanted flyer off the floor of a fish and chip shop in town. When he moved in, nobody asked him what he was studying. It was that kind of place. Yeah, I mean, it's very uh, loyal to the my experiences in the 90s. And I think that that's one of the things... I mean, I think when you put a book out, um, you learn little bits about uh, your own story. And one thing I've learned is that my experiences were pretty exotic, I think, compared to other people that I've met. And it was what's being read as menacing and quite like a toxic environment was literally just how we were living. It was, we were bored teenagers out in the middle of nowhere and we couldn't drink alcohol because we were all under 18. But you uh, compensated <laughs> for that in other ways, yeah. did you not? We did because uh, the pot was uh, easier to acquire and it was cheap. Well, the front page of um, the Herald Sun this morning, heroin is cheaper than uh, alcohol. Uh, so it, it's sort of a, a worrying uh, sort of opportunity for people. Um, now, Nate's dealing in grass. It seems innocent enough, um, but then we have uh, a, another friend, Iris, and they team up early on with, or Jesse, or we go into the backstory, um, because basically uh, the halls were a nightmare. They were filled to the brim with ex-boarding school kids from regional Queensland. So the reason that uh, Nate has got together with Jesse and Iris becomes linked with Jesse is because they identify with each other. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I mean, I don't, again, I had a good time while I was up there. But oh, it sounds like <laughs> it. Yeah, it was not, it, I didn't experience it as being oppressive at the time, but uh, reflecting back on it 20 years later, I mean, it was pretty wild and we were not uh, particularly, yeah, we were not like everyone else. We, a lot of, a tremendous number of the students were there to study some aspect of farming 
uh, and they had all gone to private boarding schools in Brisbane together and so they had this weird fraternal thing. They were used to living with one another. So when I hit the dormitories uh, in Gatton, it was mildly terrifying, but also exhilarating because I was, I'd moved out of home and uh, there was always something going on. Bit of an education in you could, yeah. more ways than one. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that um, sort of would be uh, reflective of a lot of people's experience, going from the, the protected environment of home, the protected environment of school... And then university, the whole panoply of experiences opens up. But the experiences are um, a little less than desirable, shall we say. In searching for Jesse, Nate starts discovering things about Jesse's conduct and he finds that Iris has been implicated. How much can you tell us? Because I don't want to give too much away because these comes as shocking revelations and each one is more shocking than the one before. How much can you reveal, shall we say? Uh, well, it's really it, it's a confluence of different things. I mean, part of it is that when you start writing any novel, I think that's set on a university campus, you start to pull in the campus novel, which is always like a coming-of-age sort of a transition into adulthood narrative. And I think that those beats that you just talked about are really about... They're all also moments where Jesse makes the wrong... Oh, sorry, not Jesse. Nate makes the wrong decision. So he, he could turn around, but he chooses to go sort of further into the darkness. And uh, I, invariably it ends up being a story about how a young man makes a series of bad decisions that transition him into adulthood. But these decisions are to deal with drugs, uh, with sex, with trading in drugs, uh, etc. Um, and if you think Dennis and Hatch are the worst of your problems, there are those that actually are, are in control of Dennis and Hatch. We've actually got drugs that are coming from uh, Brisbane because there's corruption in the police department there. They're being traded by other people until uh, the head of the bikie gang uh, discovers what Dennis and Hatch have been doing uh, independently. <laughs> and um, sort of Nate is caught up in this, uh, etc. Oh, well, excuse me, Dennis, says Murph. And as he says it, I see that the thing in his hand is a gun. He lifts it up to Dennis's head. And the shot cracks and echoes. Black blood sprays out of his head, and yet Dennis still raises a hand to the hole in his skull as he slumps down to the ground, like some part of his life is momentarily still in there. Out in the field, Hatch screams. <laughs> so we, we get to this point where it's, it's even worse than what happened before, which is worse than what happened before. And it's, it's, it's um, almost frightening in many ways um, and basically it's for the reader to discover for themselves this escalation of these events that take place and what has led to that point. Um, the novel then culminates, shall we say, um, in what one gains perhaps from a university degree. This is the big lesson I learned at university, forgetting is a type of debt. Last year, 
I was living a precarious life, surveying the world as if I'd forgotten that people can change as quickly as markets. The new sides of situations can appear without contingency, that things aren't always as they seem. I somehow forgot that dark incentives sit beneath the surface of people. And in many ways, that allusion to Lord of the Flies earlier is well and truly well-placed. Was that your experience at university, the dark side of people? Uh, a little. I mean, I think that's the that's the uh, that's an aspect of adult entering adulthood is discovering that the that yeah that the darkness in people not the people that are on the news or the people that you're reading about in the newspaper, but in the people that are around you or indeed in yourself. Uh, yeah, I think that's a. I mean, that's what and that's why it's called the student. I mean, that's it's about. And anyone who's listening to that passage you just read out who's studied economics would notice that it's just littered with economic jargon. Uh, that's how they talk about uh, how people behave, essentially. And the dark side of economics, really. Uh, <laughs> well, <I'll>, yeah, <laughs> I think we're living through that at the moment. Yeah, and, and the, but also then the decisions people make. And it's what you've got in many ways. There's um, a sort of association with Nate and... The bikies, and what I mean by that is uh, giving into the dark side, shall we say, or the innocent is there, and then you make those consecutive decisions, which are natural enough, but lead you further and further down that path. Yeah, I, I'm really, really curious about that as a crime writer, is about how uh, a character can go from good to bad by, like, I always joke with three bad decisions in a row. <laughs> Yeah, and and we're not we're all of us in that situation, one or two decisions away from doing something that's really dark and dangerous. Ian, unfortunately, we're going to have to end the interview there. The book is The Student, the author Ian Ryan, and it's from Echo Publishing. And your author again, Ewan? Melanie Cheng, Australia Day. Brilliant collection of short stories published by Text Publishing. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.